0: um hello and welcome to uh, Shot reverse shot a podcast what's it I'm Is is this podcast still a thing? I kind of can't remember. It's been so long since we've done one. Um, But yeah, I believe Short Reverse Shot is a podcast all about films. Uh, It's been on hiatus, um, but we're back and we sound a little bit different. um, And we sound different because um, there's been some changes. um, But it's all right. We're still your mum and dad. (laughs) Um, Ed,
1: where have we been? Well, I have... uh uh, take it, had a bit of a jaunt over to the United States of America. Yeah. Yep. Um I moved here uh, emigrated at the end of September, not long after the last episode we recorded, which may not actually have been released yet. No, it hasn't. <laughs> so people might get a bit confused in uh next month when they suddenly hear it's the old the old way again and there'll be no mention of uh the massive life changes. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so I've I emigrated to America at the end of September and uh, got a job over here on the sixth of November, which uh, of course was the uh, day of the uh, U.S. election. Uh, I like to think that both uh, Barry Barry Obama mm-hmm. and uh, myself have a kinship because we both got our, our jobs on that same day. Yeah, he he, he passed his uh, his assessment. Mm-hmm. His year-long, two-billion-dollar assessment, yeah. um, and I passed my half-an-hour interview to test computer games. When you got it, I think did they you... are they are very much um, comparable.
0: Yeah, when you got the job, did you stand up and just shout four more years, kind of? <laughs>
1: I should. I wish yeah, I had. Yeah, that would have <laughs> been that would be fucking awesome. Um, yeah, I've, we've
0: we've not been recording for a while because uh, real life in, in England has caught up with me, and I've been working like a motherfucker at uh, my job, so I have not really been available, um, and um, it kind of sucked. But you know, we had quite a few podcasts in the bag, um, and yeah, we've come to a year of shot reverse shot Ed. How how, how have we done that? we we're, we're one year old. It's our birthday today
1: i know and we're very rambunctious and troublesome aren't
0: we yeah um but
1: into the terrible
0: twos i oh, know actually no that terrible one yeah well it's just one isn't it so, yeah, yeah. no one's impressed we've got to one um but uh, i'm a mediocre pretty, one i'm pretty impressed that we've 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 managed to do a year's worth of podcasts i mean it doesn't seem like it seems like yesterday that we were sat uh i think doing the 2011 episode well actually we did a pilot first didn't we and then we did the, the best of 2011 and that doesn't seem like that long ago
1: well I think it also seems uh, impressive to me anyway that we managed to get to a year because we had the most difficult birth of a podcast mm-hmm. imaginable we recorded a pilot which sounded terrible yeah. but but at least had the core concept mm-hmm. and we recorded a second episode which uh, was lost to the ether yeah. Yeah, because uh, um, the recording uh, ran out of uh, ran out of juice. Yeah. Um, not not creatively. It was a very free-form and uh, fun uh, recording, if I remember correctly. Probably the best uh, the one actual, we've ever done. Yeah, the uh, actual. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like our version of Smile. Yeah. But, except uh, we won't get together in 40 years and record it no. and, and play at Glastonbury. Um, and uh, so, and then that, and then uh, we just kind of but even before then you yeah, know i think we, we were talking about making a podcast for months before actually starting it mm-hmm. to the point where me you and um, adam batty of uh, hope lies who uh started the podcast with us and then bailed um, Unbelievable. and then bailed um he uh he we me you and him were at a press screening for i believe we need to, to talk about kevin mm-hmm. and You basically said, are we going to make this fucking podcast or what? (laughs) And and both of us were just like, yeah, sure. And then I think we recorded the first one like a week later or something. We did, yeah. But uh, that was after months of hectoring. So the fact that we've managed to keep going for a year, I think, is, uh, is off note.
0: And we've got um, literally thousands of listeners now. It started, which is terrifying. It It started kind of just uh, some people who were like, "Oh, you've done a podcast, very well done, etc., etc." And then uh, it kind of, as we started to do more and more, it kind of grew exponentially. And um, it's either like you know a kink in the uh, the stats reporting, which I I don't want to admit to, but that could happen. (laughs) But I think genuinely we have like thousands of worldwide listeners.
1: Which uh, is wonderful news. We're big
0: in Germany. I don't know how, but <laughs> yes, yeah. I was in Hasselhoff. Yeah, yeah. That that probably has something to do with it. Um, uh, <laughs> it's been a a bit of an odd year, 2012. Um, it seems uh, a little bit of a kind of uh, feast or famine year. I think I've found overall. Um, what have you looked at as kind of being the big stories or the big kind of happenings of 2012 Ed? Uh,
1: well, I think the initially uh, I think the the thing was certainly in terms of the uh, the Oscars you know at the start of the year it started with the the artist winning the Oscars which I think was probably the most pleasant surprise um we've seen at the Oscars in many a year um you know because that was a delightful um little film that could Mm -hmm. uh and was actually not ponderous or uh in any way a chore to sit through it was just a really hugely entertaining film that managed to somehow overcome the fact it was uh foreign and silent although i suppose if it's silent it can't really be foreign That's a good point. um um and uh managed to you know do fantastically well and that was that was a really nice start to the year uh and then from there, you know, you kind of got the, the, bl- the summer season was all really exciting to begin with because yeah, the, uh, the Avengers came out and was, you know... Even before the Avengers, you know, the, the Hunger Games came out and shocked everyone by how massively successful it was. And then the Avengers came along and was even more successful and then everyone was really, really excited for the Dark Knight Rises and then the Aurora shooting happened, mm-hmm. which was uh, kind of... I think it's kind of cast a pall over pretty much the entire year in many
0: ways yeah it was a kind of um, something that didn't really register um, obviously it was a kind of a big news story and it was a kind of a huge thing but just that knock on effect of, of, of on audiences which no one really they th- people thought oh you know the, the, the effect might last for a weekend but you know it stretched way beyond that didn't it
1: yeah I think there's something to be said for it being sort of having a, a very strong effect on people on a you know on a subconscious level because you know cinema is all about escapism you know certainly populist cinema you know blockbuster stuff is all about escapism and it's all about people going to escape their troubles. And, and I think a lot of people feel safe in a cinema you know even when you're watching a horror film or something there's something you know nice about the fact that it's all just happening on screen mm-hmm. so to imagine people um you know, someone at opening fire in a cinema and just shooting at people who only really wanted to, you know, watch a film, was uh, was really quite a horrifying thing for people to contemplate. And you could really see it in the, you know, the, the way it affected the box office for The Dark Night Rises, which was um, it was still a huge, massive hit. But there's there's definitely kind of a sense that as pretty much, you know, as soon as the news broke of what had happened, everyone was kind of um people the the narrative for that film you know in a sort of bigger real world sense had suddenly shifted mm. uh it wasn't kind of like beforehand there was all that kind of fun you know is it going to take the the record back from the Avengers? you know is no one going to have the opening weekend again is it going to even though it's in two D, will it be able to, you know, become the highest-grossing film of the year? And then immediately after the, the shooting started, it was like, you know, that's all very, that's all very tawdry and uh, and and, um, and unimportant now. Uh, and it was all, it was unimportant before, but it was fun, mm. you know, to kind of have these like silly little discussions uh, about about the film. And then and, you know, as someone who writes about box office, that was uh, certainly The case, you know, it was a very exciting thing for the people on on Box Office Profits, you know, as we were all kind of talking about how we thought the film was going to do. And then immediately afterwards, it was just kind of like, you know, this is incredibly sad. Mm. Um, I think that there's, you know, you, you do hear people now talk about how everyone, certainly in America, everyone's a little edgy in the cinema these days. Or you'll hear about, you know, there was a story a few weeks ago about a guy who was arrested because uh, they suspected him of planning a similar uh, Aurora-style shooting at a, uh, a Twilight uh, midnight screening. Uh, and you just kind of get feel... Uh, you know, that eventually... That hasn't come to anything. There haven't been sort of copycat shootings, which is uh, something to be thankful for. But you there, I think there's definitely a sense now that people feel a little edgier going into cinemas than they did um, sort of back in May... And i don't think that's rid i don't think that sense is going to go away for 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 a little while mm.
0: yeah I mean that's something that um kind of no one really kind of expected to kind yeah. of happen. But, yeah, it did. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i kind of looking down at the list of the highest-grossing films of 2012. Uh, it makes for much better reading than last year's horror show. Yeah, last year was... Of, uh, yeah. of, of things. But we've got The Avengers at the top, uh, 1.5 billion. Was that in 3D, Ed? Was The
1: Avengers in 3D? It was in 3D, yes. Um, did very well. So, uh,
0: just behind it, Dark Knight Rises on a billion, pretty much flat. Um, which, uh, you know, I don't know how much difference... Um, 3D would have made to that. Maybe another third on top. I don't know.
1: It's something like that. It's. it's I think there was, there was an article that someone wrote um, about two years ago, breaking down what the sort of actual additional cost uh, grows on top of um, that, that films get on top of 3D, uh, and it's something like it, it wasn't as big as you would think. It would usually be about twenty percent or something. So. When, when you're looking at numbers that big that's you know an extra 200 million dollars yeah that's so um, that's,
0: not a that's a significant sum is it um, then we've no, got okay. a skyfall in third place uh, which is very um, surprising a, yeah big surprise and um, it's gone on to become the most successful film in Britain ever
1: yeah I think going into because one of the uh, the podcasts we recorded which uh, won't see the light of day, because uh, of technical fuck mm-hmm. was uh, a Bond uh, podcast in which both of us were kind of lukewarm on the idea and I get the feeling that people might have been a little more lukewarm on Skyfall before it came out than before all the reviews came in saying, you know, it's the best Bond film ever mm-hmm. because um, I think everyone was just really disappointed with Quantum of Solace. A lot of people were kind of like really high on the Bond film after, after Daniel Craig's first one, after Casino Royale. And then more or less immediately afterwards uh this kind of half baked uh ill considered sequel came out that used up a lot of the goodwill mm-hmm. and you kind of got the sense that skyfall really had to be spectacular in order to overcome uh what had been the uh what had been a very uh, diff- uh, a very poor uh, second film mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's exceeded pretty much everyone's expectations you know it's the closest a Bond film has come to the sort of uh, popularity of, sort of Sean Connery is at its height because the most pop- the two most popular Bond films in terms of ticket sales are Remain uh, Goldfinger and *Thunderball*, mm. and uh, Skyfall's probably sold about well. Worldwide it's very close to what those did because back in those days there weren't as many cinemas yeah. um, and there were, there were large parts of the world which just didn't get films um, so that's kind of a sign of the times more than anything else but in America it's um, the most popular since Connery and I think that's, uh, that's a, a pretty impressive achievement really considering the series is 50 years old. Was
0: yeah. um, Skyfall in 3D? Nope. So that's two. Of, Sam, two of the top three were not released in 3D.
1: Yeah, Sam Mendes. Uh, uh, I think it was on the the, the Como and Mayo show. Uh, Mark Como was talking about uh, interviewing Sam Mendes and asking him if uh, it was ever, if someone ever asked him uh, if they could film it in 3D, and he basically went, nope. <laughs> And <laughs> just would broach no uh, no further discussion of it he 's obviously got the best uh, the best quote about three d from uh, several years ago, which is someone asked him, would he ever shoot in three d and he said i have it 's called theater yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a very which i've always very uh, been very fond of
0: um in fourth place we 've got um well the uh kind of grim predictability of an ice age film <laughs> um, making yeah. nearly a billion dollars uh, ice age is it four or five Four, four, right? Okay, I and people just keep—they love them, don't they?
1: I, I am bemused by the success of the Ice I saw the first one in the cinema yeah, me too. in Dublin. Me too. Uh, also in Dublin?
0: Um, no, well, not um, that I can remember.
1: No. Yeah, it's the one thing I can remember. The, the two things I can remember about my family's trip to Dublin <laughs> in 2002: going to the Guinness factory, going to the Guinness factory, buying a copy of uh, Travis's The Invisible Band from a record shop. Right. And um, and going to see Ice Age, I don't know why. Well, that's what they. R- Dublin's a lovely city. That's what they recommend you <laughs> the do. Things. in the guide, is not it?
0: Go to a record shop, buy a Travis album, go and see an Ice <laughs> Age film. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not saying they're inexplicably popular because they've clearly got a kind of appeal to young, very small children. It's not really a kind of Pixar crowd, is it? Ice Age.
1: No, I think. Were it not for the character of Scrat, mm-hmm. the you know the little rat who's always trying to get the acorn, um, those films would have been complete non-starters. Because those films, essentially, they are essentially little sort of fairly anarchic, constrained shorts that are kind of crammed into these fairly boring and broad uh, kids' films, and. Uh, you kind of get the feeling that it owes it all to the scratch stuff which is actually you know the rest of the films fail but those film, those little shorts are always quite entertaining in and of themselves which is why whenever they've kind of like teased them um, before they release the proper trailers which go through all the stuff about you know plot or whatever mm-hmm. it's always a scratch short that's always the thing because they, they they know that that's what the fan base actually like about the films that's the part that everyone agrees on is actually
0: quite fun. Um, in fifth place, um, we've got a a film which, um, yeah, was the long-awaited uh, reboot of the Spider-Man franchise, which we've been we've had to we've, had, we've had to hang <laughs> on for for ten years to see this reboo- <laughs> rebooted. Um, the Amazing Spider-Man at uh, nearly three quarters of a billion. Um, I saw that the other day. I thought it was shit.
1: I advise terrible. It's an awful film. The thing is, though, there's, there's two films this year that I think of as kind of almost like The Forgotten Hits. Mm. Because they were really successful films that did well, but almost no one seems to be talking about them. And they are The Amazing Spider-Man. They're both reboots, incidentally. The Amazing Spider-Man and The Bourne Legacy, mm-hmm. both of which came out this year both of which were essentially rebooting series started in 2002, mm-hmm. neither of which anyone kind of, like, talked of outside of their opening sort of couple of weeks. Yeah. They were kind of like, that happened. Mm. Uh, let's,
0: let's talk about let's something else, on. yeah. <laughs> the thing is about Amazing Spider-Man is it felt like two films wedged together because the first half was... Even though I just kind of felt like I'm waiting and waiting for all the things I know are going to happen just to happen, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, like, they actually had some kind of cool practical effects when he was jumping around. 'Cause the thing I didn't like about the Raimi ones was after a while, as soon as the the hood goes on, he turns into a kind of flying CGI rubber man who's completely weightless and just bounces off for everything. And um yeah, true to form that happened in, in this one as well, just kind of degenerated and, and the fucking crocodile thing, the lizard man, holy shit. Yeah. It's like watching a mega also... drive game or something.
1: <laughs> that was the thing um but it, it, it felt like... You're right, it did feel like two films because the first half was very much uh, kind of like, yeah, we're going to ground this and it's going to be you know all about the relationships and everything like that. And then they bring in one of the more ridiculous villains, mm-hmm. um, which they're doing even more um, the next one, which is going to be Jamie Foxx as uh, Electro, or whatever his name is, the guy who uh, in the comics is like bright green, with um, lightning bolts all around his body. Um, I'm going to love to see their realistic take on that. Yep. Um, and I just thought that it had, it had this really weird tone that never really gelled, which was on the one hand, there was this kind of like, oh, he's, you know, brooding and this difficult teenager, which I quite liked in a way, because um, I liked the idea of them basically saying that Pete, uh, Peter Parker is kind of an arsehole mm. that has to uh, go through this a terrible emotional trauma of his uncle's death in order to actually become a good person. He gets over it quite quickly, um, though, in this film. <laughs> yeah, and also he doesn't catch the guy, which I kind of felt was a misstep on on their part. You know, whatever your uh, problems the, the Rainy films have, I always like the fact that um, he found the guy that killed Uncle Ben and then the guy kind of died by accident because it had that sort of sense of, he 's never ever going to get the satisfaction that he was looking for mm. he, he, he saw the guy and knew that he was the one respond that he could have stopped his uncle from being killed if he'd not uh, if he'd stopped the guy from stealing all that money but when it came to it he couldn't kill him and now he 'll never get the sort of satisfaction and that kind of spurs him on whereas in this one he just kind of uh, the guy kills him then he just kind of disappears. I did like the idea that um i did think it was quite funny that, that his quest becomes going around and beating up similar-looking criminals. Mm. until, uh, like, he's... Um, like, uh, it's a video game where they can only afford, like, three different models of villain. Yeah. And it's the same henchman over and over again. But uh, So you have the dark type, but then they have these, like, attempts at, like, really wacky humour, like the bit where he's, um, uh, you know, taunting the guy with the basketball or where he's waiting for the lizard in that spider web and he's playing a game on his phone Mm, and stuff like that which were just kind of like you kind of think these bits aren't horrible but they are not at all in keeping with the rest of the film Mm. like even in the slightest and it was long
0: as well it was so long yeah
1: yeah a spider-man film shouldn't be more than two hours that's the problem with uh with the third Spider-Man film, the third Raimi one. Mm. Um, the other, the other two might be two hours, but I think they probably go, they probably go a lot quicker. Yeah, because they just, they're just a lot more fast moving.
0: Um, in sixth place, we have a film which is uh, very close to our hearts. Um, <laughs> it is the concluding part of the Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2. Now, it's close to our hearts because we did something rather silly over the summer, didn't we? We watched all of the Twilight films back-to-back in the uh, in a weird, twisted human experiment we dubbed the Twiathlon. Um, yep. but I haven't yet capped the saga, I haven't capped it off, I haven't watched the last film yet, have you?
1: No, I don't want it to be over. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the problem. Um... No, that Twilight and I felt changed mm. afterwards. I really felt as if I'd gone through something. Yeah. Um, I then immediately had to read Infinite Jest afterwards to kind of feel uh, to, to to cleanse myself. Yeah. That, that, you know, the watching the Twilight film shouldn't be the only massive couple, uh, pop cultural undertaking of the year for me. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, after after watching the Twilight films, I I kind of have grudging respect for how well they've managed to find an audience and hold on to it right like whoever's behind them knows how to manipulate their audience and uh ensure that they all turn out yeah uh and that's that's impressive because that's you know uh more or less getting money for nothing at this point you know none of those hardly anything happens in any of those films and yet they they're Huge and insanely popular, um, but at the same time, having watched them, I can genuinely just look at them and say, oh these are terrible." Mm. Although, obviously, if anyone goes back and listens to this Why which I would recommend, because I think it's quite it, that was quite fun. Mm. Um, the first two were entertaining in a this is ridiculous sort of way
0: and camp way.
1: Yeah, New Moon was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. New Moon that was a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> Um, I really I really want to know what happens to Bella's car and her dad.
0: Yes, that was, that was the, Those, the biggest thing that we are worried about, is uh, her dad's alcoholism and her truck.
1: Yeah, if the truck gets destroyed, I I don't think I'll be able to forgive him.
0: But, I mean, that is in sixth place at the moment, but it's still on general release, and it's only a couple of million behind Spider-Man, so I imagine that will rise. But uh, in uh, seventh place on our list, um, we have uh, another sequel... Um, of a series that keeps on going for young children is Madagascar Three,
1: which I haven't seen, but I have been sent a screener of for awards consideration. So wow. I might, I might um, watch that at some point. I've heard that it's the best of the three. Oh wow! Which to me sounds like damning vehemently immensely faint praise. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. Uh, it, I think by most people's standards, it's kind of like the Thinking Child's Ice Age. Um, Brilliant. Sort of, um, sort of. You know, it's kind of got a little more of a sense of fun, and it's a little they're, they're a little just more enjoyable to watch. Uh, and I think that seems to have been reflected in this one because this one's been massively more successful than either of the previous ones, um, which again is kind of a reflection of changing patterns worldwide. You know, worldwide box office is getting a is, is becoming more profitable for for American films than it has been in the past. But I think it's also a fact that people quite uh, quite liked that one, and they all went to see it. Yeah. Also, I think it, there there was also a dearth of kind of fun, entertaining animated films in the summer, um, which it kind of capitalised on.
0: Yeah. Um, one place below that, um, a uh, well, it's a franchise film, but out of all of the ones in this list so far, this is a new franchise beginning. This is uh, the Hunger Games. Uh, which was very popular earlier this year
1: huge amazingly popular I'm very I was very surprised I knew the books were popular um but when it uh when it came out there was this kind of sense that you know it's the books uh they haven't had long to kind of develop a big audience you know as popular in the same way that you know the Harry Potter films by the time the first Harry Potter film had come out the the first book had been published like four years ago and it had become this kind of all-consuming phenomenon in a way that the Hunger Games hadn't. Mm. Um, and then it came out and it just kind of just like blew everyone out of the water. I think it's a very good example of, of um, hype working exactly as it's intended to, which is that for the month or so beforehand, and no one could talk about anything except the Hunger Games, it seemed. Like, everyone was discussing it Um and, uh, that just kind of worked. So even the people who weren't necessarily fans of the books, uh, turned out in huge numbers. Um, I have no problem with that. I quite enjoyed it. I didn't think it was great, but I did think that it was a perfectly fine adaptation. I'm much happier with it being a, uh, a book slash film series for young girls than Twilight. Um... I, in general uh, I think it's it's much better for girls to think that it would be good to be active and to kind of uh have an impact on the world and to uh you know fight the good fight than to just pine over a boyfriend during a montage yeah um, which is what a lot of a lot of twilight is um, I think that uh you know that it was it was a fairly solidly put together film. I think that the action in it was not very good. I think that was where it fell down. Um, Gary Ross is not the the he's not renowned for being an action director. Um, I'm not sure how the next one's going to turn out because they've handed over to Francis Lawrence, who is all right but not a particularly inspiring choice.
0: And they've split it into two films, haven't they?
1: Not the next one, the last one. The last really one. Oh, typical. Thoughts. As as is the style. Yeah.
0: Um, the ninth place, just creeping into the top ten uh, films of the year in terms of box office numbers, is the sequel that no one ordered, uh, Men in Black Three. Who whose idea was that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was bizarre. But, you know, um, what's your th- what are your thoughts on the first Men in Black? Uh, I think it's, I think
0: it's a very stylish blockbuster. I think it's very good.
1: Yeah, I really, really like it. I think it's a. I remember being obsessed with it when it came out. Um, to the extent that I had the game, which I think was pretty bad. Mm. If I remember correctly, a movie tie game just was
0: bad. Ed, you stunned me.
1: Um, maybe I was just terrible at it, but I remember there was one level which, in retrospect, I realised was actually based on the thing. Right, <laughs> which is an interesting choice. Um, it was all like J and K, go up to like, an arctic base to search for a shapeshifter which is I'd say fairly f- closely modelled on the thing yeah. but um, yeah I think the first one was great the second one I think was probably the, f- is the one of the first exams I can think of going to see a film and being truly utterly disappointed <laughs> um, more so uh, than something like The Phantom Menace or whatever because I, I-, I really really loved Star Wars but I think that I hadn't had enough time to kind of develop a love of Star Wars because really I only really saw Star Wars for the first time in like 1996 mm. so I only really had three years whereas um, Men in Black was like five years and I really got into it and I really, you know, I like read the novelization and all that sort of stuff um, of the first film so I was really jazzed to see what would happen with the second one and then it was just mm. just such crushing disappointment uh, it's hardly surprising that it took ten years for them to uh, make another one. And they had a
0: lot of problems um, with it, didn't they? It got delayed several times.
1: Yeah, supposedly it cost over $300 million. Blimey. Because of like reshoots and stuff like that. Um, I think they probably had a lot of trouble getting Tommy Lee Jones to sign on, as evidenced by the fact that he's barely in it. Right. Because um, he dies very early on. Uh, Or he is erased from history very early on and then they have to go back in time and then it's Josh Brolin for the rest of it. Right. Um, Which does seem kind of like uh, he signed on for the least amount of screen time they could possibly give him. Right. Uh, But the most, probably the most money.
0: Uh, I think out of all the the top ten films that are here, I think Men in Black 3... Probably with the exception of Twilight Star is probably the least well reviewed out of all these. I mean all of the other films in the top ten um have you know had alright reviews, even the Amazing Spider Man got some praise from somewhere. Yeah. It's much better yeah, I than think last year's list was a was a, a kind of veritable kind of car crash of, you know, Transformers twos and threes and all that kind of shit. It was horrible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this year in general uh, we 'll talk about th- how the, the the year in film in general, but I think in terms of blockbusters this year was nowhere near as terrible as recent years. It was all kind of more more mediocre, mm. which I think is is uh, is more than we can expect from from mainstream cinema at this point uh, that sounds very cynical right. I, I do think that there are there are lots of f- fun films that are released every year but Usually the ones that kind of write that make the most money are the ones that have the least effort and love and care put into them. So to see ones that are not reprehensible, uh doing well, I think is is uh something of note.
0: Well, speaking of uh of films that haven't had effort and care uh go into them. Um number ten is uh the this list of, of ten is completed by the film Brave, which uh is a pixar film and i was being mildly controversial there by saying it was uh not made with care and all that kind of stuff um because i really really disliked that film which is surprising because i'm a big pixar fan
1: yeah i am too i mean i wasn't i wasn't as down on it as you or some other uh people have been uh but it's it's definitely been one of their sort of more mildly received but like even the people who the people who rave about it are in shorter supply than there were for sort of, you know, Europe's and your Wallies and your Toy Story threes. Uh, and I think even and the, if you're looking at kind of like the the spread, the statistical spread of people, I think most reviewers kind of fall into the uh, sort of B B minus mm. three star sort of range, which. uh is is very is, is that's low for Pixar, really, isn't it? I mean, so it's an improvement from Cars 2 but it's uh, it's still not um, not up to their usual exceedingly high standard.
0: Do you think that um, they've with Cars two and then Brave, they've kind of, I mean, they, they've had a couple of hiccups along the road in terms of films that were, I mean, Cars wasn't particularly well received but it wasn't dreadfully received um but now they've had two in a row that have been Mm. that's unusual for them do you think that whatever they do next i'm not actually sure what they are doing next but whatever they do next Uh, is it is it not make or break but is it you know is there more pressure on it than than any other film
1: the next one they've got is mars is um not mars monsters university mars university is the um is the University in Futurama. Um, Monsters, <laughs> Monsters University, which is a prequel to Monsters, Inc., which um, I think probably does have a lot more pressure on. Like, Brave had a fair deal of a reasonable amount of pressure on, but everyone was kind of thinking, you know, Cars 2, it was them being, like, commercial and, you know, just trying to get all of the the, the the artier stuff they want to make funded by saying to Disney, you know, here's something where you can make lots and lots of toys. And you'll make shitloads of money from it because, as as we've discussed in the past, um, the the cars uh, cars wasn't a huge hit uh, in terms of ticket sales and box office, but it made an, like an ungodly amount of money in merchandising. Mm-hmm. And that's why Cars Two exists because it meant that they could create like Japanese cars, they could create uh, you know like the Ferrari, they could do all of this sort of stuff and make a huge amount of money selling the new characters to kids. And um, I think Brave. Everyone was kind of thinking, you know, you know, Brave's going to be one of the ones that's going to be uh, uh, the another one of the artistically sort of credit, creditable ones. Uh, and it sort of was, but wasn't really. It was. It, I get it, it. It didn't feel as crashly commercial as Cars 2 but I still think it ended up being sort of mediocre. Mm.
0: It was like three uh, three films in one, wasn't it, Brave?
1: Yeah. Each of which was okay,
0: and one of which was How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, yeah. which is a nice film. Is I it? Like, I, I, like I fucking love that film. But um, yeah, it, you feel like all the concepts of the characters, especially the father character, was mm-hmm. written ages ago. Then How to Train Your Dragon came out, and they were like, "Oh fucking hell. This, they've, they've yeah. done the same character." And then they yeah, just went. Which is, uh, yeah, um, yeah. It was uh, it was a shame,
1: really. That one's not as good as it could have been. I mean, I've. I've got a screener kicking around, so I might re watch it because I, I know a lot of people have been more positive on it than you or I. Mm. Not huge amounts, but you know, the, the, the people who love it really love it. And I think that any film that inspires that sort of passion is probably worth a, a second look. Yeah. So I, I, will, I will check it out again and see how my feelings But I, I kind of get the feeling that I'll, I'll end up being more or less the same on it, which is that some good ideas, is beautiful to look at, you know. Obviously. Because it's, it's Pixar and they're at the top of their game, but uh, not up to the, the quality of some of the other animated films this year, like Wreck-It uh, like Ralph, which is wonderful. Wow,
0: wow. I've not seen uh, that. That's not out here yet for a while.
1: No, I re-watched it last night. I've watched it twice. Once in the cinema, and I watched it last night with my dad, who uh, who really, really uh, loved it, and he's not so, which was good because he's not like a computer game, uh, he, he wasn't raised by a Mega Drive mm-hmm. like what I was. Yeah. So um, so uh, it's uh, it was kind of a nice confirmation that it's not c- not just nerds who uh, who enjoy Wreck-It Ralph. But there was a good... I can't remember who it was, but someone tweeted ages ago, 2012, the year Pixar made a Disney film, and the year Disney made a Pixar film. Ah, right. Uh, which, uh, which kind of seems more and more true the more I think about Wreck-It Ralph, which I think has... All of the invention and heart and wit that is kind of muted in Brave or Absent.
0: Um, Speaking of Disney, um, they were behind one of the most monumental, most talked about, most uh, complained about, most griped about, most fucking tiresomely talked about, ad nauseum in the absence of any kind of fact or anything on the internet. Story of the year, which is... Frank and Weenie. Yeah, they went and bought fucking Star Wars, didn't they? They did. And the blogosphere or the, you know... I mean, I had to stop reading movie sites because... Just the sheer vacuousness of the reporting on the merest hit—not even rumor—they weren't even reporting rumor. They were reporting what they thought might be a rumor, uh, and it really fucked me off. That you know—is yeah. this person possibly going to write Star Wars Seven? What evidence to have for that? Oh, I think it's a good idea. Brilliant, nice one. And it was so tiresome, and so much so that I don't really know an awful lot about the story yet. <laughs> so you might have to fill me in because I had to stop reading about uh.
1: it. Yeah, there was about there was about two or three days where it was fun because everyone was like making silly Star Wars jokes, and then soon after it it descended into kind of this echo chamber where someone somewhere would say one thing, which would get repeated, and it just got louder and louder and louder until you couldn't really hear the sort of uh, signal for the noise. Mm. Uh, it was a very faint signal anyway, because they've basically revealed nothing yeah. um, about what the next Star Wars film is. But um, the story basically was, um, and one of one of the more surprising um, news stories in recent years was uh, that Disney bought Lucasfilm for four billion dollars, which is uh, no, not is uh, not uh, chicken scratch. That's a, a fair a fair deal of uh, flannel shirts for George Lucas. Yeah. Um, although um, obviously he gave it all to charity, which, which is, is the amazing. thing that
0: gets looked over in this story, I feel, because I think a lot, of, so many people have got it in for George Lucas, and you know, I'm not a fan of his. I think his films are terrible, but um, uh, you got to take your hat off to someone who will sell that and then give. Have they committed to giving away to like three quarters of his entire wealth to charity before he dies?
1: yeah he's been he's been a big advocate of um education charities and uh investing in education in america but also in the developing world and i think he's he wants to kind of you know obviously his family is all set for life mm. because he's george lucas but he wants to you know m- m- uh, much like sort of bill gates you know take his immense wealth and sort of hand it out into the world, which I think uh, will hopefully be a stronger legacy for him than the fact that he made some terrible films. Yeah. Which I, th- which I think is probably is, is a more noble thing to be remembered for for um, Giving away four billion dollars rather than necessarily for how you earned it.
0: Yeah, I think that people, what I didn't get about <laughs> it was that people were upset because, you know, could you get really any more upset about Star Wars, I mean, if, you, if we look at it the cold hard facts, and this isn't even you know, if you don't look at it uh, from a kind of personal viewpoint, you just look at it from an empirical viewpoint, Star Wars is more shit than good the, you know, there's, yeah. there's six films only two of them are actually any good the other four, yeah. you know do you know what I'm saying?
1: One, one of them's half good yeah, half good the, um, the, 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 there's, lot, there's plenty of good stuff in Return of the Jedi until the Ewoks show up. Yeah, uh, but even then, you know, it's got a cool lightsaber fight. Yeah, and the space battle in um, Return of the Jedi is the best of all.
0: You, you're right. Yeah, but I mean, but, yeah, it's, it's more not rubbish. It's, it's good. Not so why are people? Why are people still pissed off about it even after? I mean, do they still think that you know these the two films that everyone kind of reveres and they're kind of like across the board accepted as being amazing? Um, do, do they still think there's something in there? I mean, what is it with these fucks? Can they just give up on it?
1: I don't know. I think it, there's this kind of. I think it's more Disney's reputation than anything. I think they've they kind of got the idea that, you know, it's gonna they're going to uh, take everything that's quote unquote special about Star Wars and kind of, you know, commodify it and uh, make it more corporate or whatever. What more just so than it already bullshit. is shit? Yeah. Because if there's anything that's been sort of watered down more over <laughs> the years. It's Star Wars, yeah. um, which has obviously had you know this, it's, had its legacy kind of dragged through the mud so much for all the various, not just the, the prequel films, but all the various spin-off stuff, um, which has just done little to um, improve its its cultural standing. I mean, it's, it's still culturally, like, hugely significant. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's... it's uh, pretty much the most pop, most popular film ever made in, just in terms of people seeing it because mm. you know everyone's seen Star Wars near enough, everyone knows references from Star Wars this is a huge part of the culture um, and I think that for a lot of the uh, for, for a lot of the, the backlash is kind of the people thinking that the idea of Star Wars can somehow be uh, tainted even further uh, which uh, I, I think for you and I, who are people who uh, who for whom it's already been tainted more than enough, mm-hmm. uh, we can probably look at it from the outside and say, actually, I don't think they can do a worse job. Because mm. that was the, that was my first response. Was um, you know people are complaining that Disney have bought Star Wars. I'm complaining that it's not happened. It didn't happen in 1997. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, like, because if there's one thing that should have happened is someone should have taken that series away from George Lucas. Yeah. Because, you know, as we say, seems like a lovely guy, Uh, you know, done a lot of charity, terrible filmmaker. Yeah, You know, he got very, very lucky. Um, He was able to assemble a very good creative crew around him in the 70s and 80s to create those films that are, are good. And then got so much money that no one could say no to him, and that's where things went very wrong. Um, so I and I think that the worst that can happen is that the subsequent you, you might end up with this, the same thing happening as with the Marvel films, because most because a fair few of the Marvel films have been made under the eye of Disney mm. because Disney bought Marvel some several years ago, and which would be that they are perfectly serviceable reasonably well-made blockbusters which is a step up yeah I don't think I don't necessarily think that um like so far that the only person who's been confirmed that's been involved in it is Michael Arndt who wrote Little Miss Sunshine which is a nice film and uh Toy Story 3 which is a great film and he has uh so he's written two good films he might write a third good one (laughs) he might write a good Star Wars film um and no one else, so it's too early for anyone to say whether or not it's going to be good. Currently, the rumoured director that everyone's kind of thinking it's going to be is Matthew Vaughan, the director of Kick-Ass and um, X-Men First Class, mm. um, who I don't really rate that much. Mm. I, don't, I don't really like either of those films. I don't. But um, he's, a, he's a solid, workman-like director who can probably do something reasonably good with it, with a good script. They, the problem with both of his previous films is that they were made with, from not very good ideas. Mm. Um, so I think that um, with a solid script, he could probably make a solid Star Wars film. And uh, I think that all the hand-wringing over the, the future of the franchise is nonsense.
0: Yeah, I concur. Really and um absolute nonsense that's uh yeah i feel like we should just end the podcast there <laughs> <laughs> um but no we've got we've got so much more to talk about because um, uh, as much as it has been um a uh, kind of a uh, kind of black hole which everything has fallen into in the last kind of month or so this kind of Disney Star Wars film they did, there were other things happening this year um, several people had um, we'll do a little thing now called uh, good year bad year where some people had good years and some people have bad years it's it, you know it's not a great little th- we're not going to make a jingle for this bit let's just say that much sadly um, but uh, yeah I mean it was all billed at the start you brought this up a couple of weeks ago that it was billed um, this year as the, the year of Taylor Kitsch um, the year that the young man from Friday Night Lights would cross over because he, he had several leads in big films um, that could have seen his star kind of rise where did it all go wrong Ed?
1: Well I think the the, prob- the main problem was that um, Taylor Kitsch I, I, now I've said this in the past but I think Taylor Kitsch is a wonderful actor I think he's really great in Friday Night Lights he you know evolved so great in such a wonderful way over the course of that five years of that show Uh, from being this sort of like um, kind of like the pretty boy at the start to being this sort of tragic uh, noble figure by the end uh, in a way that um, I think surprised everyone really Mm -hmm. Um, and he was he was this uh, charismatic guy who was you know very loose and funny and uh, really good at improvisation and essentially all anyone saw in him from the films that he was casting this year was the pretty boy yeah that was what they they so all they they kind of like shoved him into, uh, sort of very bland roles. John Carter, whoever the fuck he played in Battleship, um, and th- that didn't play to his strengths at all. Um, they basically were very bland hero roles that could have been filmed by any filmed by any number of young actors. You know, you could put Aaron Johnson, the mm-hmm. guy from Kick Ass, in there, and those films would be in no way different. Yeah. Them, how they turned out mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's a shame really because I think those far and away the, the tragedy of it is that more people even though both of them were kind of like huge flops certainly in America worldwide they did slightly better but even then more people saw John Carter than we'll ever see Friday Night Lights yeah Like more, it will have sold more tickets than uh, than anyone will ever see Friday Night Lights. So for most people, that's who he'll be. He'll be that guy who's kind of boring, uh, rather than this guy who can be great and can be, you know, a wonderful presence. Uh, And that's kind of that. I, I kind of get the sense that this year was just so monumentally bad for him in terms of the quality of the films and the reaction to those films and the success of those films or lack of success of those films. Um, the other one, of course, was *Savages*, the old *The Stone* film that no one saw. Yeah, but the people um, who
0: did see it said it was fucking terrible.
1: Yeah, I think that he's probably grateful that that one just didn't uh, didn't generate as much conversation as the first two. Yeah. Because um, I think that one would be a real career killer if people were actually talking about it. Um, you know, that that's, that could really adversely affect his career going forward. and I, I wouldn't want to see that. I would like to see him. Do something... I think his... The, the natural career choice for him would have been to kind of go for low-budget mm-hmm. roles, but clearly... Like, like Jesse Plemons, his uh, Friday Night Lights co-star, who's also in Battleship, but is in The Master and Breaking Bad as well, so he's had a he's slightly done, better year. He's done okay. um, You know, where, where essentially the threshold for scrutiny is lower. Mm-hmm because if the film's not a success people aren't going to be writing or talking about you on a podcast at the end of the year um, and uh, you know, you're not going to have to worry about having your entire image as an actor tainted by a massive flop yeah. um, instead he did what I think a lot of people would have done which is people come up to you and say uh, do you want to sign on to this big blockbuster with this massive paycheck which uh, you know is probably more money than you've seen in your entire life Or would you want to kind of go and make art? Yeah. Uh, And also, you know, he was working for people who, you know, you would be foolish not to agree to work with. You know, Oliver Stone, Andrew Stanton, Peter Berg, who obviously he's had a long-standing relationship with uh, from Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was like all of those decisions probably looked really good at the time, but, you know, in the real world, they uh, kind of ended up falling on their face.
0: So, um in terms of a good year Channing Tatum had an excellent year this year yeah. he, he is he is kind of not really put a foot wrong I mean he, he's someone that uh, you kind of instantly think of him as being kind of a teen heartthrob but I never never kind of saw him in those step up films or whatever my first exposure to him was um, a guide to recognising your saints have you seen that film
1: yes Uh from the guy who also then has worked with him a few times since. And, yeah, like, fight, I think he, he fighting. did fighting, yeah.
0: Um, so I didn't. I just kind of saw him as a kind of uh, a slightly kind of lunk-headed actor, and then uh, 21 Jump Street and Magic Mike have really kind of really put him on the map, and then I hear this week he's actually going to take a break from acting, so... Yeah,
1: I think... It- no, if you told me a year ago that this was going he was gonna have as good a year as he's had, I wouldn't have believed you. Because I remember a year ago, or just over a year ago, um, a film called The Eagle came out, which was a Roman period piece directed by Kevin Macdonald, mm-hmm. uh, which co-starred him and Jamie Bell. Which, by all accounts, was fairly okay, um, but uh, it, it was it was not successful. And I remember when it came out on um, box office profits, one of the sites that I wrote for. Um, there was a discussion about it and we were saying, you know, is Channing Tatum a draw? You know, can he bring people in? And I said at the time that he wasn't, but he was, like, he was... He was one hit away from being a draw. Mm-hmm. Because... And this is going back to something that William Goldman wrote about, like, um, about, uh, Dudley Moore being in 10 and Arthur, which was essentially that, uh, you need, like one hit is a fluke and then like but two hits and suddenly you're a star Yeah, and you can really see that with Channing Tatum because he went through a period where he was he was in like um, there was a Nicholas Sparks film um, Dear John Mm -hmm. uh, with Amanda Seyfried which was a big hit because it was like a big romantic slushy drama and then he was in a bunch of other films that didn't do anything but then uh, he was in what was the other one The Vow which was like the big romantic drama that he was in at the start of the year which was uh, was another big hit. Mm. And it was kind of like... And that came on, and then suddenly, like, three weeks later, it was 21 Jump Street, which was an even bigger hit. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of this... There was this kind of this suddenly knock-on effect where he went from being that guy who was in, like, a couple of popular films to being someone that people were actually quite excited about mm-hmm. seeing a new film by. And I think I think a lot of that was to do with 21 Jump Street, Um because The Vow was one of those films that you kind of got a sense that would have been popular regardless of whether he was in it because it was a big slushy or anti-drama. And then 21 Jump Street just like took people so by surprise mm-hmm. uh, by how like entertaining it was yeah. and how funny he was in it because mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not someone you associate with being a funny guy. That as soon as that was a hit, suddenly Magic Mike, which was like the low-budget Soderbergh stripper comedy, mm-hmm. Which people were thinking would be one of his ones that doesn't do so well, suddenly became this big, like uh, this this big sort of swirl of media attention where everyone was kind of like, you know, there were there was all this stuff about people going uh, arranging sort of girls' night out to go and watch it, and all this talk about you know uh, female sexuality because it was also the year of Fifty Shades of Grey and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, That it suddenly it suddenly. Went to being this like ended up making a hundred million dollars, which is crazy to me because it's not the sort of film you would expect to do like do that. No, because <laughs> it's actually it's actually a lot more concerned with the the kind of the grinding misery of being a stripper than it is the kind of freedom of dance and all that sort of stuff. Mm, it's, um, it's been
0: marketed over certainly over here as a kind of um, wacky comedy almost. It was yeah. I really couldn't get because I mean, and I kind of did think it was supposed to be a comedy but when i watched yeah. it i was like this really isn't that funny <laughs> this is really depressing
1: yeah but, but did you think it was a, a still a, a fairly good film i thought it was brilliant just just not yeah but not, it's not comedy, no it's not a comedy no it's not a comedy it has it has funny lines most of which are in the film or in the trailer yeah, yeah but mainly it is about you know what it's like to be on the bottom rung of the economic ladder yeah. to try and like and trying to grip essentially scrabble to try and survive and try and uh, live your dreams and then just the crushing misery of it all mm. with some very in- uh, exceptionally well choreographed dance sequences yes um uh, yeah so it was very it was very strange but you could see why it wasn't marketed that way because as soon as um like 21 jump street was a success mm-hmm. Like it was like we have to sell this as the Channing Tatum stripper comedy yeah. because now people uh, have seen him be funny in something. We need to show him being funny in this next one, and then it was a huge hit. Mm. So yeah, his it, there was a, there was a, there was a, a clear sort of knock-on effect because he started the year with another Steven Soderbergh film with um, Haywire, mm. which was uh, pretty good. I quite enjoyed that, a nice sort of throwback spy thriller. But no one saw it. Yeah. It was like it was released, no one cared. Uh, and then, sort of, within weeks, suddenly he was uh, the biggest star on the planet, which was uh, crazy.
0: Mm. I mean, that's it. Soderbergh all over, isn't it? One film that is hugely popular, one film that literally, even people who are well into Soderbergh—what did he just make a? Did he just make another film? <laughs> just snuck one in. He made it on a video camera for like 50p. Um, yeah, he always does that. That crazy Soderbergh.
1: Yeah, because if you look at his like his recent one, like the, the film before *Haywire* was his documentary about um, uh, st- um, what's his name, <laughs> um, Spalding Gray, mm. which is great, it's a great, it's a really great documentary, uh, really lovely tribute to him. But uh, yeah, and then the next thing is sort of weird, uh, throwback to sort of '70s spy thrillers, and centered around an MMA star. And the one after that's like an, a, a stripper drama. It's just like he's a He's a he's a delightfully merc- mercurial talent, in mm. Soderbergh. He's a loose I, I really, I hope he doesn't retire, or at least he doesn't. Uh, he only takes a few years away because uh, part of the fun of him is just wondering what the fuck he's going to do next.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, bad year for uh, Clint Eastwood uh, for a, for a few reasons. <laughs> yeah. uh, most notably, his appearance at the Democratic convention. Um,
1: Republican, the other one. Yeah,
0: that one. Yeah, the Republican. Oh, he's a, he's a bad guy, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, he's at a Republican uh, convention. And he turned up and did a uh, skit with a chair, and um, even some of the Republicans were like, "Oh, dude, dude, that was bad. It, Why did you do that? It was that? a,
1: it was an improvisational masterclass. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just so it was just so so bizarre, really, because you know when afterwards they asked him what was it that what was the thinking behind it and he said that he only agreed to speak if they weren't allowed to look at what he was going to do beforehand then he hadn't thought of anything and he was sat in the waiting room before being going on stage and he saw a chair <laughs> and suddenly it all came to him terrible terrible idea mm. but um yeah i think it's it's bizarre because he's not someone you think of as Kind of stepping into the political arena, other than you know when he was mayor of that town in in California. Mm. But he's not—he's never someone who's kind of aired his views that much. And usually, when he does, it's not really sort of one way or the other. I remember m- one of my favorite uh, quotes from him on the subject of uh, of politics was someone asked him about gay marriage, and it, he said something which was probably the most Clint Eastwood response to that question, which is. Uh, essentially, I don't care what the hell anyone does in their own room. <laughs> it's in their own bedroom. You know, more or less just saying, you know, who cares? Mm. Um, you know, let people get married. It's no, it's no concern of mine. Mm-hmm. Which is very much in the kind of, you know, I grizzled or just want to be left the hell alone sort of thing. So for him to kind of like wander out onto the, uh, the world stage in such a, a high profile and potentially embarrassing way was, uh, was kind of startling, really.
0: And it had a knock-on effect with his film, was it The Trouble Trouble with the Curve? Is that the film that came out?
1: Yeah, it it was. It was the one that, uh, yeah, it was like the worst um, SNL hosting gig ever. Mm. Usually people (laughs) go on to promote their latest film, he went on, it really had a negative impact. Um, It's hard to judge that sort of thing. I think there's a a certain audience that will always turn out for Clint Eastwood films anyway, because he's this icon. But I think in the case of the trouble with the curve, there were probably a lot of people who watched who were just kind of like, yeah, he's just a sad old man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe don't want to go and see his film. I think it also didn't help that the film, like, like a lot of his his films, the films that get really good reviews, people go and see in large numbers. Mm-hmm. That one got mediocre reviews, so people were like, no, why bother? Yeah. Um,
0: um, good year for um, someone who's had year after year of well, bad years Um, Matthew McConaughey uh, made a bit of a comeback uh, this year, he's been uh, in kind of rom-com limbo for quite some time hasn't he, and he's had a kind of not only he's had a string of um, successful films that were good but just kind of a real variance of you know, kind of variety of of work that he was doing, kind of lots of interesting stuff with different directors doing kind of stuff that he wouldn't normally do
1: yeah, I mean, you you and I have talked uh, at length about how good he is in, you know, Days and Confused and, and Lone Star, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you look at the, the the films he was making in the early night, even something like um, A Time to Kill, in which you know is a you know John Grisham pop boiler but is still a, a reasonably well made one. He's very ma- um, very magnetic in that. He is very magnetic in it, and I do like um, that film. Does have a great Samuel L. Jackson being mad mm-hmm. performance. Uh, there's just something wonderful about him saying, uh, <laughs> "Saying yes, I killed them and they deserve to die." It's like ah, there's not much room for manoeuvre there, mm. in, a, in a court. Mm. Um, you know, but so you, you look at him and he was this, you know, this good-looking guy, but he had kind of a fire to him. He was this guy who was, you know, there was a real spark to him. And then in kind of a similar way to what we're saying about uh, Taylor Kitsch, people saw the pretty boy thing and then just kept putting him in sort of Roles that could have been filmed by anyone, really,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in the case of, uh, and that essentially meant that he just kept getting cast in terrible rom-coms because they paid. You yeah, know? they paid a decent amount of money, uh, and but you know, I think a lot of people had written him off as an actor mm-hmm. uh, during that time. I certainly never really thought of him as anything uh, worth paying attention to, but you know, this year it's like suddenly as if he kind of I like, looked at his bank balance and said. I think I've learned enough. Mm-hmm. I think I can get back to you know the art, um, uh, and you know he d- d- delivered a series of you know very very good performances. You know he's really really good in Magic Mike. He's uh, good in Bernie. He's uh, amazing and horrible in uh, in Killer Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you, have you seen Killer Joe? No,
0: I've got it, but I haven't watched it yet. Joe. <laughs> um, it is uh,
1: it is. It is very intense um, and it's hard to qualify it as necessarily good. Mm-hmm. It's very uncomfortable. It's it's it's, a, it's either a very, very dark comedy or a immensely uh, disturbing drama. I'm still not entirely sure which. There are parts of it where I think if I'm meant to be laughing at this, this is pitch black. Mm-hmm. Humor. <laughs> if I'm not meant to be laughing at it, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's meant to be the former, but it's a really, it's a you know, it's it's a, a really, really interesting Friedkin film. Uh, William Friedkin, director of The Exorcist, which is a great film, and French Connection also great. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, Jade,
0: which is one of the worst <laughs> films of all time.
1: Yeah, he's had his ups and downs. Yeah, <laughs> um, has has Friedkin, uh, The Live and Die in L.A. Another good one. Yeah, but you know, it's, it was a really good. It was a really great year for Matthew Cunney. I think he's uh, he's done some fabulous work this year. Whether or not it continues, uh, I guess depends on his mortgage payments. Um, cause, uh, but I think if he can keep doing interesting work, he'll kind of uh, hopefully go up in the estimations of other people in much the same way as he has for for me this year. Because um, you know, I, I always just thought him as kind of like a bland, inoffensive presence. Um,
0: yes, I'm cautiously optimistic about um, Matthew McConaughey's revival because uh, I'm kind of never quite sure how long it'll be before um, you know, Kate Hudson comes in and he has to kind of go and do Well they um... need to
1: they need to complete their trilogy of, uh, of Suck which is yes. uh, uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days Fool's Gold and whatever yeah. their third one is You can't leave it at just two
0: No, w- was he not in her no, that was Sarah Jessica Parker Sarah that was, was played launch, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, of course
1: it was. Um
0: No, no. Um I tell you what who someone who had both a good and a bad year, and is someone I'm, I'm still not sure how he kind of comes out even at the end, is uh, Brian Cranston, who um obviously is in the greatest T V show of all time, uh Breaking Bad. Um Yes, yep, absolutely. But also, he's kind of uh, crossover into films. It was very promising last year. He had Drive. He did a great performance in Drive. Um, but this year, he has been in two absolute fucking stinkers in uh, John Carr and Rock of Ages. And I'm I'm sure there was another one he was in that that, that kind of sucked a dick, as it were.
1: <laughs> uh, can can I, you think I, of what it was? I can't off the top of my head. No. Um, I know for for most of the year he was kind of like. In terms of his, his good stuff, it really was just kind of like, well, he's always got Breaking Bad to fall back on, um, mm-hmm. which he may not for, well, he won't pass next year. It's not like they're going to do the end of the next season and then just think, mm, maybe a bit more.
0: We'll make some more, yeah.
1: No, they're, they're unlikely to, uh, to come back and do more. Oh, Total Recall.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, Total sorry, Recall one. Um, so yeah he's had a kind of very bad year well I think he finished strongly with Argo which people seem to like yes uh, he is very good in that
1: he's not got a huge amount of stuff in it he's uh, the head of the CIA in it uh, or he's mm-hmm. the he's not the head of the CIA he's kind of like the guy who is Ben Affleck's boss works right. directly underneath uh, Philip Baker Hall who shows up very briefly oh, um, nice. and who's always welcome always a welcome presence mm-hmm. um, but he's uh yeah, he he did not translate how amazing he was in Breaking Bad for the last five years to uh, to his work on this big screen, which is uh, a shame, terrible shame, really, because mm. um, I think uh, you yeah, you and I have talked at length about how wonderful he is. So, but you kind of, again, it it goes back to that Taylor Kitsch sort of thing. It's like so, it's, it's great that he is so good on a show that hardly anyone watches. Mm-hmm. I'd really like it if a lot of people could see him be amazing in a, in a really great film Argo's the closest he's got to that so far
0: Do you think that for him he'll always be a supporting actor in films?
1: Or a lead in sort of indie dramas mm-hmm. I think he's he's at that stage in his career, which is not a bad place to be, because he seems to be an incredibly nice guy who's uh, had a, a, a great career uh, Originated some iconic roles, at least three I can think of. You know, is mm-hmm. uh, Magnum, the Middle, Breaking band and of course uh, Tim Watley in Seinfeld. In Seinfeld, yeah, yeah, which I think is probably um, pro- probably the thing most people, have, more people, have seen him in, in than anyone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's he's got a he's got a career to be lot, enviable enviable on, but at the same time, I think he's probably still a dream for most most actors to kind of want to be someone who's, you know, got their name above the title. Um, mm. And I kind of get the feeling that's not going to happen unless it's for films that, are, you know, are aiming at a small audience, but then again, that might be the best place for him in terms of, you know, put, giving out a really great performance.
0: Mm. Um, anyone else you can think of who's had a either particularly good or particularly bad, year?
1: Uh, as Someone who's had sort of a... It's kind of a mixed year, but probably more good than bad. Megan Ellison, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, producer, um, billionaire heiress, who uh, made a big name for herself a few years ago as one of the people behind True Grit, the Coen Brothers film, which made a huge amount of money and was a, a big, critical, critically lauded success. Uh, and then immediately afterwards, kind of set herself up as this kind of, like, this saviour of American cinema. American independent cinema by bankrolling uh, the master the uh Paul mm. Thomas Anderson film which we may be talking about a little bit in a few weeks Yeah, um, possibly quite possibly if it if if it were, have winds up on our uh, collective uh, best of of the year um mm. and uh you know she's produced other films in the past but this year she had three or four out um she was behind uh, the master lawless uh, Killing Them Softly uh, Zero Dark Thirty which is yet to come out and the reason why I'd say it's a, a mixed bag is that all of those films are uh, of, of, uh, I'd say they're all pretty good um, The Master is great Zero Dark Thirty is really good um, mm. uh, Lawless is okay I was really really positive on it after I, I watched it but I kind of have forgotten all about it now um, and I haven't seen Killing Them Softly but I've heard really great things Mm-hmm. Uh, but not all one of them made money <laughs> wow, <laughs> which is I think lawless is the one that came closest to being a hit it It cost like thirty million and made about forty so and the master
0: hasn't hasn't done anything
1: no it's, it 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 broke the record for the highest per screen average for a live action film mm-hmm. uh in its first week because it was in like four theaters and grossed like several hundred thousand dollars. Which was crazy, um, yeah. and then so it became this big sort of like, oh my god, you know, this film's going to be huge. And then once it went into wider release, it um, it didn't really do as much. Which, to be fair, I understand completely because it's not an easy film. Um, it's great, but it's uh, not uh, as as easily sellable or commercial as anything else Paul Thomas Anderson's done, and uh, he's not the most commercial director going. So um so you know it's it's uh it would have been nice if it'd uh, been a big hit but uh sadly it, it hasn't i think zero dark 30 is probably the the one of those that quartet that's probably got the best chance of being an out and out hit uh being a sort of action film being released over uh the christmas period which is the box office bonanza in the US and obviously you know, with the caliber of the people involved—Mark uh, Bowell mm. and uh, Catherine Bigelow, Jessica Chastain, uh, John Barrowman John Barryman. Yeah, I've, very I've briefly heard in John it, in it. Yeah. In a very distracting. The first time he's in is the most distracting because he doesn't say anything, mm-hmm. and you just kind of wonder if he's been cast as an extra. Um, and then the second time he's cast in it, it's even more distracting because he's in a scene with Jessica Chastain. James Gandolfini and Mark mm. Duplass. Right. Uh, Mark Duplass was everywhere this year. He was this year's Jessica Chastain. Um,
0: yeah, but the thing is with Duplass is that he's everywhere every year because Yeah, he's, that's good for so right. many fucking things.
1: Um, but uh, yeah, she's kind of she's she's made good on this kind of idea that she's out there um, supporting and funding these interesting films that really wouldn't have got made if she hadn't—you know—the master probably would not have got made if she hadn't fronted the money for it, because the, the funding fell through. Um, and she's she's behind uh, Anderson's next film, which is likely to be um, his adaptation of *Inherent Vice*, the uh, Thomas Pynchon novel, which again is a film that I can't imagine anyone rushing to fund if they weren't uh, very wealthy and kind of f- taking on the role of patron. Uh, in terms
0: of adaptations, it's not exactly Twilight, is it? A Thomas Pynchon novel?
1: No. Um, so I think that there's a. She she has made good in that, but at the same time, films have to make money. So you would yeah. kind of, you would kind of. Think it's it's kind of a. I think on the balance sheet, it probably ends up slightly more positive in terms of the quality of the film versus their sort of commercial advantage. And none of them were like. None of them were hugely costly, so I don't think it's. Uh, I think it's a, 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 uh, an equation that will balance out more or less at the end when they're, they're doing their accounts.
0: And I think when those films inevitably pick up kind of awards, um, you yeah, know, that'll have a knock-on effect of their box office, and those films yeah. will do fine. I mean, you know, overall
1: today, on the day we're recording, you know, Zero Dark Thirteen and The Masters have both been, and over the last week, they've been kind of dueling, duking it out for who can get the most critics' awards. Zero Dark Thirties had a, been named Best Film of the Year. Um in the, the LA Critics and Boston, I believe, or uh, mm-hmm. or New York. It was a, there were a few critic circles which all released their awards this week and uh, it's it's been a split more or less down the middle between theirs. Um oh no, LA gave it to uh Amore. The uh the Michael Haneke film was their uh, their best film of the year. But um, you know,
0: that, that's the best um, parody Twitter account of the year is the Michael Haneke one
1: I think yeah I think we can all agree it's very unexpected <laughs> <laughs> it's not not the one that you would uh, it's the sort of thing where you didn't realise it was missing from your life until yeah. until it showed up and you were like I must I can't believe this didn't exist until now um, yeah, and by the
0: time this podcast goes out everyone will be was, sick to death of it
1: yeah but uh, you know that was that's a, a, a very pleasant surprise Um.
0: We're going to talk about the depressing bit of uh, of this podcast now. Um, in the people who have kind of uh, passed on, uh, people who have died in 2012. The notable death section in mem- memoriam, as it were. Uh, I suppose the big one, the most shocking one, I guess, uh, for the year was the kind of untim- and untimely death of uh, director Tony Scott. One that came as a as a, as a massive surprise and one that's still uh, kind of shrouded in not mystery, I guess, but uh, just general kind of disbelief
1: absolutely yeah because I mean like suicides are always shocking um, mm-hmm. you know and from someone who by all accounts was not the sort you know no one really kind of like talked about him being a very uh, being a, a depressed or, or a downbeat person um, mm-hmm. it came as a, an immense shock um, and uh, I think also I think you, you kind of it's, it's a weird thing to say, but y- y- you'd imagine if someone was going to sort of kill themselves, it'd be someone who was like an artist, mm. you know, someone who was like really suffering for their art, as opposed to someone who was a hugely successful commercial director. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not the sort of... Those aren't... The, 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 those concepts don't usually go together. I mean, mm-hmm. success uh, does nothing to... Mediate whether or not people are are, are deeply unhappy, or you know, there's, there were rumors around the time that he might have been ill, although that's not been confirmed, and in fact has been denied by his family. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's you you just wouldn't really fathom it, really.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, and the fact that. No one still quite knows what 's happened obviously yeah. it 's you know not really anyone else 's business beyond the families but um the fact that he was such a such a name in the directing world um i mean I think the man on the street would probably go Tony Who and then realize that they had seen and loved many 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 of his films um that it's yeah it 's just it 's just quite a kind of uh, a really bizarre episode, really, that I'm I'm really not sure if there's, you know, ever be a resolution to. Yeah, um...
1: I think... Pete, it, it, yeah, unless they announce that, you know, he was ill or, or there was some sort of note or anything, I think people will never really know what happened there, which will, of course, fuel the kind of sense of uncertainty over it, which, uh, in some ways, probably... Uh, probably do more to kind of fuel interest in it which i think is, um, is something that probably shouldn't happen i think it, it's something that should be left as a private matter and that people yeah, should totally. not not let it overshadow his uh his body of work which uh, is uneven um mm-hmm. but uh I, you know he made some very very good action films i think he was a cut above the michael bays of the world when it came to um sort of big scale action blockbusters Undeniably, a huge uh, influence on on the form uh, on on mm-hmm. blockbuster entertainment, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, someone who had his own distinct style and made some uh, some some really some some really terrific. One. I think uh, Man on Fire is great. I think that's a really really great film. I really enjoyed Unstoppable. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, the uh, Crimson Tides very very good.
0: Yeah. um Oh, yeah. and uh, oh, uh,
1: True Romance obviously is a, is is
0: terrific. Yeah, yeah, that's my like least favourite of all his films. Oh right, I hate, I'm, I'm one of those people who really hates True Romance. No, oh, uh, okay. I, I kind of I always wonder what it could have been like that film it had to been directed by someone um, with a bit of subtlety. I'm not really. sure. <laughs> uh,
1: he, is, he was not subtle. <laughs>
0: no. Um. Uh. Other kind of notable deaths this year. Uh. It was I had to see Ben Gazzara go. Um. Mm. The kind of uh character actor but also was a kind of leading man in a lot of john cassavetes films um also responsible for one of the most ludicrous performances of all time in the film roadhouse so he plays a villain in roadhouse and and oh my god that, that performance has to be seen to be believed mm-hmm. um but you know he he is someone who's you know been there seen it all and you know he's got one hell of a, a cv yeah it's uh,
1: it's always sad to see someone go who's kind of you, you know they're, they're those people who were always around. They were always in lots of things, because mm. it's kind of as if uh, you know a, a, this kind of it's kind of like waking up one day and realizing that uh, a room in the house has suddenly disappeared. It's like I don't, mm. you know, I personally wasn't kind of like before Ben Gazara died. I wasn't kind of thinking, you know, about him too much. It wasn't like a constantly thing. You know, I wonder what Ben Gazzara's is up to, but then. <laughs> but then like after he died you kind of like you know wow he was he was absolutely amazing you know he, yeah, he, was, he yeah. wasn't always at the forefront of my mind but as soon as you go you realise what you've lost uh, yeah. but yeah you know his work with Cassavetes is astonishing Husbands is great with uh, mm-hmm. his, his, uh, I think that was the first Cassavetes film I ever saw and it was uh, had a, had a g- great and profound impact because i would never really seen anything like it and his performance in mm. it is, is particularly great
0: Um, Ernest Borgnine a uh, a kind of one of the old school heavyweights uh, he uh, sadly passed away this year I have to confess I actually already thought he was dead and that sounds terrible to say but I did think that
1: yeah I will remember him for um, being uh, for his appearance in The Simpsons (laughs) Uh, I remember him for many other things He he was a wonderful actor but I still uh I sh- I still uh, whenever I think of him, I can't help but think of his uh, his perfor- guest performance on The Simpsons, uh, which then of course led to him being the voice of Mermaid Man on SpongeBob SquarePants, um, right. which is a a, a a startling performance on his part. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, but he's the
0: last the last of the Wild Bunch to go. Is he? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, so, yeah. He was. He was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He's one of the old guard. Mm. Just around for a long time, always in. But you know, he he didn't really he didn't slow down too much towards the end. I mean, like he was in Red a few years ago with uh, Helen Mirren and Bruce Willis, and you know that old people action uh, action movie from a couple yeah. of years ago. Uh, so he was still he was still kind of like chugging along.
0: Mm. Um, uh, Nora Ephron died this year. Um, that was
1: that was a shock
0: that was a real shock and um, uh, for for those who don't know because she's not exactly a household name but she is a uh, screenwriter and director uh, playwright as well Um, and she wrote what I consider to be one of the best scripts of all time in uh, When Harry Met Sally um, which is a wonderful piece of writing and an amazing film and um, you know if people kind of well uh, people don 't expect me to say that, but uh if you look at every romantic comedy ever made um since well since that point uh they all kind of try and and uh kind of match what she did with that, and you know none have ever been anywhere near as successful um but that was a very kind of um sudden and kind of tragic end
1: yeah i think uh there's a there's a lovely piece written by uh, Lena Dunham uh, about Nora Ephron and the, the, how m- much of an influence she was, which I recommend people checking out. Uh, I think the the outpouring of of kind of grief and uh, and, and tributes from people in the industry and just fans, because you know she 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 was very she, uh, she may not have been a household name, but she, a lot of her work was hugely popular. Like when Harry oh, yeah. and Sally, obviously, it was kind of like the the high point but you know she did she did write a, a a lot of very successful films and uh i think that the the response that he got was a great testament to the impact that she had not just uh in terms of you know she did she altered the way that people write romantic comedies everyone has tried to do uh the uh, when harry met sally thing uh even like last year there were two comedies about whether or not men Women can have sex and uh, stay friends, which uh, I think is a tribute to uh, to her the the quality of that film. That twenty years after it's been written, people are still badly trying to copy it.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, and she she died after a very kind of uh, kind of short illness, um, as did um, Michael Clark Duncan, which was uh, seemed to come from nowhere.
1: Yes, a, a fine actor. Uh, Mm-hmm. Very uh, delightful presence in pretty much everything he was in, even though he was often uh, terrifying because he was yeah. such a, a hulking figure. You know, uh, I when I think of him, the the two that come to mind are him in the Green Mile, where he's this kind of gentle giant, this this uh, man who is essentially Jesus, because Stephen mm-hmm. King's not subtle. Uh, no. Even names him John Coffee, JC. Well done, yeah. Steve. Um, and uh, you know the other one is like him in Sin City where he's just this man who's just like all brawn and uh, implied menace because he's just this huge hulking figure but you know if if you see him in uh, interviews and and stuff like that and also you know just when he was in sort of more light hearted stuff he just seemed to be this guy who was very sort of vivacious and fun Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah very uh, very uh, great loss in all honesty, I didn't really want to kind of dwell too much on it right? because if you start if you start looking at the Immoriorium sections on uh, on uh, you know at the end of the year you kind of get a bit sad. It's hard yeah. not it's hard not to because you just kind of think of all the great work that's gone and all the great stuff that you're not going to see because they're not around, they're not going to make more.
0: Yeah, uh, I'd, like, I'd just like to give a, a little shout out to. Uh, yes, it's sad, um, but we can think of all the great work that Sylvia Cristel. Uh, otherwise known as Emmanuel, uh, did in all those films. Uh, There are many, many men like me whose teenage years were infinitely eased by the work (laughs) of Sylvia Christelle. (laughs) And, um, I mean, especially for me, I mean, Emmanuel 7, where um, uh, Emmanuel franchise took a kind of sci-fi turn, a virtual reality turn, and in the first scene, the very first scene, where uh, Sylvia Christelle, who kind of moves into a management role, uh, <laughs> is um, kind of overseeing a virtual reality fantasy set in a convent, and she says the immortal line, "Activate the nun," <laughs> which I always thought was you know probably the best line of, of of any film ever. So I'd like to you know pay my own personal tribute to Sylvia Christelle. Um I wonder if she'll make the Oscar roll.
1: Uh, I'm sure she was in some non-Emmanuel um, films over the years. Mm. Um, so I would, I, I, I would think so. Uh, Place your bets now.
0: Um, maybe, yeah, not, um, uh, maybe not.
1: Maybe uh, not. I, d- I don't think it will be another Brad Renfro uh, being oh left yeah. out of the uh, the Oscars.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they would never do that again. Um, so, in all, all in all, Ed, I mean, two thousand eleven, our first podcast that we did, uh, we uh, sung the praises of two thousand eleven. It was a, a wonderful year round, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff uh, happening, uh, and a lot of great films. Uh, how was two thousand
1: twelve? I don't think it was as good as last year. In that, I don't think any, I don't think there've been many films that have hit the highs. There have been no. some. I think we'll talk about them in a few weeks but mm-hmm. uh, I think that the, the, the there was not a sort of the, the base level of quality wasn't as high um, as it was last year but at the same time it also wasn't as low. Uh,
0: no. it,
1: the, the, the The blockbusters this year weren't as terrible at least not the ones I didn't not the ones that I saw um, but even then I think yeah most people I think pretty much everyone would say that something like Battleship is better than Than Transformers three, not by much, but it's still something. Um, Yeah, it's still something at least. Um, And I think that um, this year is not. It's not going to go down as one of the classics, but I think I think there was a a a sort of base level of quality that was you know reasonable and uh, fairly fairly good Um, as I say there were some absolute sort of um, cast iron great films a couple of masterpieces maybe uh, Mm -hmm. released this year but there weren't any sign of like unbelievable stinkers either so I think Mm. that's not a bad that's not a bad place to be
0: um, but last year we had a, you know, it was a real kind of banner year for British film, and this year it's been kind of uh, much quieter. I mean, it would be hard to top what happened last year, but uh, yeah, much more low key this year from Blighty.
1: Yeah, I think it'd be um, it would be hard to sustain that much considering the way the British industry is is mm. is funded. You know, we don't really have the money to kind of constantly be cranking out films. I think last year was probably more of a a a chance uh, of a chance happening of a lot of really interesting films all coming out at once. Yeah. Um, Which probably won't happen for a few more years. I'd like they'd be good if it happens sooner, but it probably Mm -hmm. won't. Um, I think we'll probably, but that doesn't mean that you know there were no good British films released this year. It just means that there were less, um, and that it would probably will probably get a few years where you'll get like a couple of of good, really good British films released every year, and then hopefully every five or ten years we'll have a year like 2011 where everyone's kind of like, yes, we can really do it.
0: Mm, the British are coming, etc.
1: Yeah, we should probably avoid that. We should probably mm. avoid shouting that if from some sort of high-profile stage
0: yeah let's keep the hubris down yeah you know i mean
1: we're known for our reserve
0: yes absolutely um is that like jam and stuff okay that brings to an end part one of shot reverse shots 2012 review of the year um parts two and three will be up in i don't know next seven or ten days uh talking about not only the best films of the year but also the very worst so uh stay tuned for that and uh we'll see you then Bye. Thank <laughs> you.